Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Rebellions of 1837. The motto of Quebec, the province, is Je me souviens. I remember. But what is it they're remembering? The British conquest, and to almost as great an extent, perhaps, Les Troubles de 1837, the rebellions. After a long and painful imprisonment of 11 months, after having had all my property burned and destroyed, and the most extreme misery brought upon my children, the enemies of my country have separated me from them, perhaps forever. They have exiled me. Adieu, Canada. I leave a wife in tears, children too young to remember their father. My countrymen, protect the defenseless. Protect and give unto them, and heaven will reward you. Adieu. On September the 26th, 1839, Maurice Le Payeur and 57 of his compatriots were handcuffed and marched down to the Montreal docks to board the steamer British America. At Quebec, they were transferred to Her Majesty's ship Buffalo, bound for the prison camps of Van Diemen's Land, part of today's Australia. It would be many years before Le Payeur would see his homeland again. Le Payeur was sentenced for his part in the second of the two rebellions which shook the British government of Lower Canada in the years 1837 and 1838. These rebellions were far more widely supported than the Mackenzie Rebellion in Upper Canada. By the fall of 1837, the British had effectively lost control of the countryside around Montreal, and during 1837 and 38, there were full-scale military battles in these areas which amounted to the reconquest of Quebec. Whole villages were burned to the ground in the dead of winter. Twelve Patriot fighters were hanged, and in 1840, a desolate and dispirited people found itself forced into a union it dreaded with Upper Canada. The rebellion was a struggle for control of the destiny of Lower Canada. The Patriots believed that the growing integration of Lower Canada into the British Empire and the increasing pace of British immigration denied them opportunity and ultimately threatened the very existence of French Canada. They demanded a government responsible to the people and not to the colonial office in London. Their leader was the eloquent and aristocratic Louis-Joseph Papineau. Where will we see so malevolent a contrivance as an executive council without responsibility? Ten or twelve individuals hold all the royal prerogatives with no responsibility whatever. England must be told that the assembly cannot support or defend a factitious aristocracy which is loathsome and insufferable in America. Under Papineau's leadership, the Patriot agitation for an elected government acquired a steadily increasing tempo which finally led to armed conflict in 1837. 
Tomorrow night, we'll look at the rebellion itself. But tonight, David Cayley tells about the roots of the conflict in Lower Canada. The story of the Rebellion of 1837 really begins with the conquest of New France in 1760. Wolfe's victory over Montcalm on the Plains of Abraham brought to the colony the first of the British merchants who would eventually dominate first the fur trade and then the whole economy. It also opened a question that would hang fire for the next three generations. What was to become of this French people under British government? The Colonial Office clarified its intentions with the Quebec Act in 1774. A pact was struck with the traditional establishments of New France, the church and the nobility, the seigneur. Quebec was to keep its own system of landholding, the seigneurial system, and its own civil law code. This displeased the new British merchant class. They wanted the old order abolished because it confined and shackled commerce and they wanted an elected assembly, which they had been promised by a royal proclamation in 1763, but which the Quebec Act had failed to deliver. In the 1780s, they were joined in their demand for an elected assembly by the French middle class, merchants, notaries, doctors, and so on, and for a few years, both groups maintained a common agent in London. At the same time as this was happening, Loyalist refugees from the American Revolution were also pouring north into Quebec. The colonial office now faced quite a puzzle. How to satisfy everybody? They tried to solve it with the Constitutional Act of 1791. The Act divided old Quebec into two provinces with separate governments, Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Each was to have its own democratic assembly but the power of these assemblies was to be counterbalanced by an appointed upper house, the Legislative Council. So the Loyalists got what they wanted, a province of their own. The French middle class got what it wanted, an assembly it could control. But the British merchants were shut out. What they had wanted, says historian Murray Greenwood, was something completely different. They wanted uh, an undivided colony, and they expected that the loyalists who had come in would be, um, you know, part of their voting bloc, and that the cities of Montreal and Quebec would be overrepresented in their literacy and language and uh, property qualifications, so that in fact they would dominate the assembly. And they were awfully chagrined to find that uh, the government in England decided to divide it into Upper and Lower Canada along the Ottawa River, because that meant that they—that is, the main merchants of Montreal and Quebec City would be uh, leading a very small minority of Anglophone or English uh, population. The merchants wanted control of the assembly in order to abolish the seigneurial system and its legal support, the old French civil law code. This system is sometimes described as feudal, but in fact it was quite unlike the French original from which it evolved. It began in New France as a system of land settlement. All land was assigned to a seigneur, or overlord, to whom rents and other obligations were due. He in turn granted lands to settlers, the habitants, as they came to be called. Tithes were also due to the church. The merchants disliked this system because it encumbered all land with certain obligations and made it difficult to transfer. 
It was not yet real estate in our sense. Supporting this system was a civil law strongly oriented to the rights of families. The merchants also disliked many of its features, says Marie Greenwood, like the community of property between married couples. Most property fell within the community, so you had a, uh, let's say, a merchant who extended credit to a shopkeeper who was Canadien, right? and they were heavily into shopkeeping. And he'd uh, sue for his debt, and he'd find that he could only collect on half of it, half of the inventory the guy had, right? because the other half was owned by the wife uh, under the community. So that was uh, also uh, anti-commercial. And there was no imprisonment for debt. There was no bankruptcy law worthy of speaking of, no, no partnership law, and so on. So the laws were essentially not designed for a uh, commercial culture. And the merchants, you know, just were driven crazy by this. The dissatisfaction of the merchants and the determination of the French Canadians to preserve their system made the new assembly's prospects pretty poor from the outset. The Constitutional Act had set up a system designed to work by consensus, but the assembly immediately polarized. The first session, John Richardson, the head of the British party, will say, why is it that French Canadians meet in rooms in the hotel and prepare the next days and we can't do nothing because they've already decided what they're going to do? Historian and national archivist Jean-Pierre Wallot. In other words, right from the beginning, you've got parties and the parties are pretty divided along both, I would say, uh, ethnic and along also social lines. That is, the, the British merchants and the high officials on the one hand, uh, which is called in a party, which is called by the French Canadian, the British party, which also is often called a bureaucratic party or a government party. And on the other hand, the Parti Canadien, which comprise uh, the French Canadian members. Right from the beginning, 80% of all recorded votes or more are along the lines of these two parties. I mean, uh, it's quite uh, remarkable. We would think that this would uh, be become worse and worse with time, but no, it starts right from the beginning. And in fact, the insult, the opposition, uh, for instance, in the election in 1792, uh, Jean-Antoine Panet will become the, the uh, House uh, president or uh, House l'orateur, we say in French, uh, speaker. Uh, we'll see in the, in the election, if you elect me and my friend, I forget who he was, uh, we're going to crush the English under our feet. Now, this kind of thing goes on across the province, of course. It's not particular to Jean-Antoine Panet, but this shows a little bit right from the beginning a kind of uh, quite strong opposition, which is uh, ethnic, of course, but it has also many, many other facets. The program of the merchants was to abolish the seigneurial system and make the province British in laws, in language, and eventually in population. The Anglican bishop Jacob Mountain, for example, proposed an English system of education which would, he said, introduce English habits and English sentiments and dispel the thick cloud of bigotry and prejudice which rests upon our country. But without control of the assembly, they could not carry through this program. They quickly soured on democracy, moved closer to the government, and sought influence in the appointed branch of the legislature. The Canadians caucus out of doors on all questions, John Richardson wrote derisively to a friend in England, and try to change their minds is like trying to talk to the waves of the sea. This antagonism was made worse by the French Revolution. Richardson was convinced that some of the French-Canadian assemblymen were infected with the detestable principles now prevalent in France, and he even suspected his old ally, Joseph Papineau, of being a French agent. Ethnic polarization had transformed the merchants from liberals into conservatives. 
Lower Canada, at the turn of the century, was experiencing rapid economic growth. Led by the expanding timber trade, exports through the Port of Quebec quadrupled between 1800 and 1812. Wages rose, the economy became more diverse and more complex, and new villages sprouted across the countryside. Jean-Pierre Wallot thinks that these changes produced a revolution of rising expectations and left the French Canadians, in effect, all dressed up with nowhere to go. They had control of the assembly, but the executive government had all the power and the patronage that went with it. These people are, have experienced uh, kind of economic growth, they experience new ambitions. What are they seeing in front of them? And even the habitants, because new research tend to show that habitants, at least those who had land, uh, well, see their, uh, their welfare grew up by about 20 to 40 percent between 1790 and 1835, so just prior to the rebellions. Well, what happened to them? Well, their expectations have risen. They expect a lot of uh, new things. They expect to have more power in the house. They expect to see more, uh, uh, more power for French Canadians. They expect to see uh, Lower Canada become a kind of a patrie inside the empire, but more uh, directed by them. They expect to see more money put into local development and not in developments that would serve Upper Canada or the empire. They expect to get jobs. They expect to get contracts. And they are not getting any jobs. They're not getting any contracts. Less than 1% of all contract money, both of the military and uh, civil governments, go to French Canadians. Uh, so this is a kind of a, a growing sentiment, you know, growing feeling of injustice. Of, uh, and then, of course, socially, you've got all the have who are all protecting themselves in the council and in the government, and the have-nots, whether French or English, who are fighting against them and trying to get some, some bite into power, and they're not getting any. The French Canadians were not only excluded from political power, they also faced the superior economic power of the English. The economy of Lower Canada was being integrated into the empire, according to historian Stanley Ryerson, and the British merchants naturally had the inside track. The contact with Lombard Street on the part of Montreal merchants, the contact with the city of London, the what has already become uh, the center of world trade in the center of world finance. But their special contact with it will allow them, enable them, access to capital that will immediately settle the fact that even though they are 10% of the population, the English, the English businessmen, they're less than that percent, but they will have the edge in relation to any French-Canadian competi competition. And uh, the French Canadians will be ousted from the fur trade. And in any case, the fur trade will be superseded by the timber trade. And there'll be people like William Price, who comes out as an agent of the Admiralty, but who comes, becomes a uh, self-enriching magnate <laughs> in the timber trade. Uh, but you'll have that structure that the B&B &B report of the 1960s is going to describe a century and a half later uh, as a situation in which the English minority in Quebec uh, is in an exceedingly privileged position in relation to the French majority. Excluded from economic and political power, the French middle class who formed the Canadian party 
had a very material interest in changing the system. But they were also idealists, identified with the interests of their nation and shaped by the revolutionary ideas which had already transformed France and the United States. This idealism was powerfully expressed in their leader, Louis-Joseph Papineau. As a student at the Seminary of Quebec, Papineau had read the forbidden books of the French Enlightenment, and they left a lifelong imprint on his thinking. Stanley Ryerson. It happens that I have two books that belong to Papineau's library because there was a cultural scandal in 1922. His personal library was auctioned off and cast to the four winds. And it happened, I came upon two books that have his signature on the title page. And they are books by Dolbach, the philosopher, one of the philosophes that were for, uh, precursors of the French Revolution. And one is called Le Système de la Nature, and the other is Le Système Social. And it's annotated, and no, he'd worked on it. But that, what is that? That's the heritage of the French Revolution mm -hmm. in Lower Canada. Uh, Montcalm and his, a couple of his generals had volumes of the encyclopedia of Diderot and d'Alembert, and were reading it at the time of uh, the British conquest. And Papineau will say at one moment in the uh, late 20s or early 30s, the good doctrines of modern times I find in the American Declaration I have found the good political doctrines of modern times explained and revealed in a few lines of the Declaration of Independence of 1776 and the Declaration of the Rights of Men and Citizens of 1789. The real social doctrine of modern times is summed up in a few words. The only legitimate authority is that which is consented to by the majority of the nation. The only wise and benevolent constitutions are those in whose adoption all concerned were consulted and free majority consent obtained. Conflict was built into the Constitution of 1791. At first, it was sporadic. In 1810, when the British governor, James Craig, seized the presses of Le Canadien and threw the leader of the Canadian party into prison, it intensified. Between 1812 and 1815, when war with the Americans united the province against a common enemy, it relaxed. But by about 1820, the assembly and the executive government had arrived at a standoff that would last with few interruptions until it ended in war in 1837. The issue was money. Who would control the public purse? The Constitution of 1791 had given the control of what were called the casual and territorial revenues to the Crown, and these had initially paid the government's expenses. But when these were no longer adequate, the government had to apply to the Assembly. And it was then, says historian Phil Buckner, that the crisis hit. What the Constitutional Act of 1791 did was to give the local government a period of grace when it did not have to rely upon the local uh, assembly for any kind of financial support. Now, so long as the government 
was not dependent upon the assembly for financial support of any kind, it could more or less ignore the assembly. But inevitably, uh, as the colony grows and the needs grow and the, uh, the government requires more resources simply to carry out its responsibilities, it has to appeal to the assembly. The assembly will not give it any money except on its own terms. And so you have the beginnings of the financial crisis by 1818, 1819, which results in a, uh, the beginnings of a deadlock even in the 1820s, which the British government tries to break by uh, the abortive attempt at union in 1822 by uniting the two Canadas. The bill to unify the Canadas was introduced in the British Parliament in 1822 as a result of the efforts of the Montreal merchants. Their aims were the same as they had been in 1791, bring their hinterland within one political jurisdiction, submerge the French population in a larger English one, and get rid of the seigneurial system. They explained their reasons in their petition to the British government. The improvement of the colony has been paralyzed. The extension of British settlement has been impeded. The increase of the British population prevented. All commercial enterprise crippled and the country remains with all the foreign characteristics which it possessed at the time of the conquest. It is in all particulars French. The adoption or rejection of the Union will determine whether it is to be forever French. The unreasonable extent of political rights conceded to this population, with a sense of their growing strength, has already had the effect of realizing, in the imagination of many of them, their fancied existence as a separate nation under the name of La Nation Canadienne. A system of government which exposes Great Britain to the mortification and disgrace of having reared to the maturity of independence a foreign conquered colony ought not to be persisted in. The Union Bill created a storm of protest. The Upper Canadians liked it as little as the French Canadians, and their Attorney General, John Beverly Robinson, lobbied vigorously against it in London. The Canadian Party also sent its representatives to London. They were Louis-Joseph Papineau, leader of the party and speaker of the assembly, and John Nielsen, the Scots Presbyterian editor of the Quebec Gazette, a bilingual paper allied with the Canadian cause. In London, Papineau obtained a copy of the merchant's petition and read it with mounting anger. Are not these accents of rage and hatred? Are these the sentiments we might look for from brothers in arms with whom we have so recently striven in 1812 to repulse a common enemy? Will the provincial government still refuse to sign the petition against the Union? Or will they, with their usual imbecility, when the whole country is crying out with indignation against this infamous act of violence, isolate themselves and sever their interests from those of the country which it is their duty to govern and not to outrage. Because of the vehemence of the protest, and because opposition came from both Canadas, the Union Bill was withdrawn. The underlying conflict persisted. Behind the debate over the Union were two antagonistic visions of the economic destiny of Quebec. The merchants saw Lower Canada in imperial and continental terms. 
a view lyrically laid out in Donald Creighton's Commercial Empire of the St. Lawrence. The river was their link between the wealth of the interior and the markets of Europe. They needed canals on the river so they could export Upper Canadian and American wheat more cheaply than their American competitors. The Canadian party saw things differently. They wanted locally oriented development. Why should they subsidize canals that would allow Upper Canadian wheat to displace their own in export markets? Better to build the canals on the Richelieu. They were beginning to see Lower Canada as a country in its own right, and not just as an outpost of empire. They called themselves Canadiens. Their opponents thought of themselves as British. Phil Buckner. Throughout the empire, what you have are collaborating elites. I mean, groups who are tied into, for a variety of reasons, the imperial connection, and who identify themselves not as Canadians or Upper Canadians or Lower Canadians or South Africans or Australians or whatever, but who see themselves as, well, really provincial British, living in a, a part of the empire. And their loyalty, their larger loyalty, is to that empire. And that's essentially, it seems to me, what the struggle in both Canadas is about. I think it's too often forgotten that what's happening here is that the, this is the period of, of a, uh, when Britain is becoming the dominant um, imperial nation in the world, when her technology, her capital investment, her, uh, her people are expanding the empire uh, and tying the colonies more closely to the British Isles through a whole series of connections. Uh, there are those who welcome that, and that includes most of the colonial elites, wh wherever they are, and there are those who oppose it. One of the most obvious and galling expressions of expanding British influence was immigration. By the 1820s, according to historian Fernand Ouellette, the British population was increasing so rapidly that the French Canadians began to fear they would be engulfed. You know, Quebec City in 1800, Quebec City had about 20% of English in its population. In 1831, Quebec City, 45% of family heads in, in Quebec City were English. In Montreal already, in 1831, there was a majority of English people. You see, the implication is that the French population, the French culture, will become essentially connected with, with the rural area, will lose contact you know, with, uh, with the towns they had. The French Canadians not only feared that they would be overwhelmed, they also disliked the indignity of serving as a dumping ground for the surplus population of the British Isles. And as the inspecting physician at the Port of Quebec reported, many of the immigrants, particularly the Irish, arrived in very wretched condition. I am almost at a loss for words to describe the state in which the emigrants frequently arrived. With a few exceptions, the state of the ships was quite abominable. So much so that the harbour master's boatmen had no difficulty at the distance of gunshot, either when the wind was favourable or in a dead calm, in distinguishing by the odour alone a crowded emigrant ship. I have known as many as from 30 to 40 deaths to have taken place in the course of a voyage from typhus fever on board of a ship containing from 500 to 600 passengers. As to those who were not sick on arriving, I have to say that they were generally forcibly landed by the masters of vessels, 
without a shilling in their pockets to procure them a night's lodging, and very few of them with the means of subsistence for more than a very short period. They commonly established themselves along the wharves and at different landing places, crowding into any place of shelter they could obtain, where they subsisted principally upon the charity of the inhabitants. For six weeks at a time, from the commencement of the emigrant ship season, I have known the shores of the river along Quebec for about a mile and a half, crowded with these unfortunate people, the places of those who might have moved off being constantly supplied by fresh arrivals, and there being daily drafts of from 10 to 30 taken to the hospital with infectious disease. One of the diseases was cholera, and in 1832 it reached epidemic proportions. In Montreal, during three weeks in June, nearly a thousand people died. When friends meet, wrote a Montrealer of the time, they bid each other adieu as though they will never see each other again. Day and night wagons are seen carrying bodies to the cemetery. Sorrow and terror reign in every face. The Patriot leader, Charles Seraphim Rodier, in a speech at L'Assomption in 1832, drew a terrible moral. When I see my country in mourning and my native land nothing but a vast cemetery, I ask, what has been the cause of these disasters? And the voice of my father, my brother, and my beloved mother, the voices of thousands of my fellow citizens, respond from their tombs. It is emigration. It was not enough to send among us avaricious men without any spirit of liberty to enrich themselves at the expense of the Canadians, then endeavor to enslave them. They must rid themselves of their beggars and cast them by thousand on our shores. They must send miserable beings who, after having partaken of the bread of our children, will subject them to the horrors following upon hunger and misery. They must do still more. They must send us in their train pestilence and death. The Canadian party grew gradually more radical, and as it did, its more conservative elements began to fall away. In 1826, it changed its name to the Patriot Party, and shortly thereafter, the first signs of a rift began to appear between a more militant faction under Papineau's leadership at Montreal and a more conservative group centered on Quebec City. In 1827, both groups were organizing a campaign against the administration of Lord Dalhousie, the British governor between 1820 and 1828. Dalhousie had just refused to recognize Papineau as Speaker of the House. The Montreal group wanted a vigorous protest, but they felt the Quebec City members were holding back. Papineau complained in a letter to John Nielsen, his old ally in the fight against the Union Bill. I share in the annoyance you must feel at the sluggishness and hesitations of your committee. 
We have found it difficult to induce the people of Montreal to wait with patience. And I now learn that your people have only got to the length of talking and speech-making without coming to any conclusion. The letter continues, and Papineau focuses his attack on one of the Quebec City members in particular, Vallière de Saint-Réel. Dalhousie had just dismissed Vallière from his militia post to punish him for his political conduct, and Papineau felt that he was taking the insult entirely too lightly. A letter just received informs me that Monsieur Vallière is pouring forth strings of high-sounding elegant phrases to show that much may be said both for and against the policy of petitioning the king. Heavens! What a deluge of words! And it is not for lack of brains, but simply lack of character. Does he feel his silk robe so stuck to his skin that he cannot lose it without losing strips of flesh and enduring unbearable torture? Does he hope to retain it? Can he honorably do so in view of the affront offered him by his lordship? in dismissing him from his position in the militia on account of his vote in Parliament? To no other man but yourself would I say thus freely what I think of Monsieur Vallière. But I cannot help giving vent to my grief and vexation when I see him prostituting the talents with which nature endowed him at the feet of a man whom he cannot but hold in contempt. One can feel in this tirade against Vallière just how much Papineau's own pride may have been wounded by British chauvinism. But its political significance lies in its foreshadowing of the split between Montreal and Quebec, a split that would come out into the open in the early 1830s. In 1827, Papineau called John Nielsen the only man with whom he could talk freely. In 1831, he broke with him. At issue was a bill which the Patriot had introduced in the Assembly dealing with the constitution of parish councils. In Lower Canada, the parish was an important institution of community as well as of ecclesiastical administration. In New France, according to historian Alan Greer, these councils by custom had been elected, but then the clergy tried to eliminate the practice in order to assert their own control. It was at this point that the House of Assembly became involved. By the 1820s, parishioners were beginning to try and find an ally in their battle against this uh, encroaching clergy, and they were finding it uh, among their elected representatives to the House of Assembly, who were, by and large, as you know, you know middle-class professionals, uh, many of them country notaries and doctors. And so on the basis of these petitions, the uh, Patriots, as they were beginning to be called in the late 1820s, passed a bill which provided a constitution, if you will, for parishes which in effect re-enfranchised the property owners of of the locality. The passing of the parish council's bill outraged the clergy, and they lobbied successfully to have it overturned by the legislative council. Jean-Jacques Lartigue, the Bishop of Montreal, said that Papineau, who was his cousin, 
had behaved shamefully. Up to this point, Papineau had maintained an ambivalent attitude towards the church. He was privately anti-clerical, but supported the church as a national institution. His view of his cousin Lartigue embodied this ambivalence. I admit that as a neighbor I should have little liking for Bishop Lartigue, for fear he should take it into his head to preach at me. <laughs> but as for the progress of the establishment of the Canadian clergy, since their interests are bound up with all other Canadian interests, I would resign myself to this inconvenience, as well as to all the others that I would not like to put up with as a private person. Papineau's cagey and qualified support for the clergy was never really reciprocated. He would have liked the church to identify with his party as the voice of an embattled and indivisible nation. In fact, the conservative church hierarchy had distrusted the patriot from the beginning. The parish council's bill settled the matter. However much Papineau wanted to hold together a national French-Canadian consensus, the reality was that important divisions ran along class lines and not national lines. The struggle over parish councils, which pitted the habitants against the priests, was an example. The fact that the Patriot took the side of the habitants was a sign of their growing radicalism. And Alan Greer thinks that the habitants, for their part, were equally capable of identifying with the issues which exercised the patriot. They knew perfectly well what the rights of the people were, what opposition to arbitrary authority was. They were not inexperienced uh, in these matters. Uh, they had their own views about these things, which I think you could qualify as a kind of primitive democratic uh, ideology. I mean, it, it was not phrased in, in lines out of uh, Tom Paine or Rousseau, and, and it could be considered a kind of uh, ultra-localism uh, at its worst, but it had, the, it had a basic um, notion of the rights of the people to create the community in which they live and to, within limitations, govern it according to their own lights. And so when the patriots operating at a different level in the realm of sort of official constitutions, express concern about the authority of Britain or of the governor of the, of the legislative council without the habitants necessarily being experienced and fully uh, aware of what those entities were. They knew bloody well what arbitrary and oppressive authority was and how to oppose it. So I think the I think the habitants themselves actually had a certain degree of civic consciousness. They they were concerned, yes, about seigneurial dues, about debts to the merchant, and so on and so forth. And that certainly conditioned their responses in the political realm. There's no question about that. But they also, at the same time, had uh, genuine political concerns. <coughs> After 1830, the Patriot strategy shifted decisively. Up until this time, they had not questioned the British regime itself. When George III died in 1820, Papineau told the House that every year of his long reign had been marked by new favors bestowed on Lower Canada. 
the Patriot had embraced British parliamentary institutions, and they had believed that even if the local British elite was oppressive, they could still get a hearing in England, as they had in 1822 when the Union Bill was defeated. Now this changed. Under Dalhousie, wrote Patriot leader Auguste Morin, only good was said of the authorities in England and ill of the colonial administration. All is different now. It is England's conduct which must be censured. This shift in the Patriot strategy occurred at the same moment as the British government was trying to accommodate the Lower Canadian House of Assembly. This was ironic, but certainly not accidental. Like partners always out of step, the British only granted one demand to have the Patriot formulate another, more radical. The problem, according to Phil Buckner, was that there was a limit to how far the colonial office could go, and it was well short of what the Patriot really wanted. I think the British saw themselves as making significant concessions. That is to say, they were prepared to give a very considerable degree of control over to the local assembly in both Canada's and elsewhere in the, in the Maritimes, a control over, even over the, uh, some elements of the executive government. But they also, uh, were, there was a line beyond which they would not, and I don't think could go politically. No British government can surrender the power to control immigration to, the, to a colony, can, say, can allow a colony to put up barriers against British immigrants. No British government can allow a colony in this period to establish restrictions on the influx of British capital and British goods. They could not surrender uh, the power uh, to ensure that the co these colonies were developed as part of the British Empire. And therefore, they could never go far enough to really conciliate uh, the Patriot Party. In 1830, a new British governor, Lord Aylmer, invited Papineau to join the Executive Council a sort of cabinet in embryo which advised the governor. Papineau treated the invitation as no more than an attempt at co-optation and declined. Dominique Mondelet, who accepted, was branded a traitor by his fellow patriot for doing so. Papineau's rhetoric grew more furious. He accused the English of passionate hatred of Canadians and unbridled love of money. He called the legislative council a putrid cadaver. Governor Aylmer could soon see that his efforts at conciliation were doomed to failure. By 1831, he had detected in the Patriot Party a latent desire to dissolve the connection with Great Britain. Some of the Patriot leaders, like Auguste Morin, were already speaking privately of revolution, though they could see that the time was not yet ripe. The discontent was there, but a spark was needed to ignite it. The Montreal West by-election of 1832 provided the spark. It pitted an Irish newspaper editor, Daniel Tracy, against a merchant called Stanley Bagg. Tracy had just been released from prison, where he had been held on a charge of libeling the legislative council. Papineau, who was courting the Irish vote at this time, through his full support behind Tracy, who eventually won. The election was extremely violent, as elections sometimes were at this time. Tracy's paper, The Vindicator, which was allied with the Patriot Party, reported its version of what happened. Canada has witnessed the most foul and barbarous murder of several of her citizens. 
Yesterday evening, at the close of the poll, when the candidates were retiring with their respective friends, and after Mr. Tracy's party had advanced far down St. James Street, a tumult commenced, which gave pretense to the magistrates to call out the military. When the people beheld the military advancing towards them, they began to disperse. This, however, was far from satisfying the sanguinary minds of the magisterial partisans of Mr. Bag, who seemed anxious for the opportunity of attacking. Three persons lay dead last night in the little chapel of the Fabrique. Others have received wounds. Consternation has seized upon the most reflecting part of our fellow citizens, while the violent opponents of the people of Lower Canada think they have won a great victory. A grand jury investigated the three deaths and found that the use of armed force was entirely justified and its timely interposition averted the catastrophes which must have ensued if the rioters had been suffered to pursue their impetuous and destructive course. But the Vindicator's version was the one accepted by the Patriot. St. James Street became the Rue de Sang, the Street of Blood. Papineau called the British party cannibals. The three deaths became what the Boston Massacre had been to the American Revolution, a rallying cry that echoed through Patriot speeches and proclamations right up to 1837. The policies of the Patriot Party were also entering their final phase. Papineau pronounced that the elective principle must be extended to every aspect of government, that the very character of Lower Canada as an American society required it. The unanimous consent with which all the peoples of America have adopted and extended the elective system shows that it conforms with the wishes, customs, and social condition of the inhabitants. This is an order of things peculiar to America, where there can be no aristocracy created. Canada's social constitution is essentially democratic. Here, everyone is born and dies a Democrat, because everyone is a property owner. The Patriot campaign for elective institutions was a last-ditch effort to gain control of the government of Lower Canada, an effort which they saw as basically defensive. Without a popularly elected government, they felt they had no chance of preserving Lower Canada as a distinct French-Canadian society. But responsible government was something the colonial office was absolutely unwilling to concede. Phil Buckner thinks that this left Papineau between a rock and a hard place, forced to threaten what he never wanted to do. Basically, I think Papineau realistically understood that the chances of a successful rebellion were not very great. And that what he was trying to do was put pressure on the British government to concede what uh, the French Canadians regarded as the minimum necessary uh, without resort to violence, but, with, but by using the threat of violence. Um, but, of course, it didn't work. And the, uh, and the problem is that, ultimately, he's pushed uh, into a, a rebellion, I think, uh, somewhat against his own wishes, somewhat against his own belief that it will succeed by the pressure from below. This pressure came from both the habitants and from a younger, more left-wing group within Papineau's own party. This group wanted more than just national independence. They wanted social change as well. 
They could see the growing dissatisfaction of the habitants with the seigneurial system, and they felt that their success in mobilizing them depended on their addressing this issue. But the question of seigneurial rights was a touchy one for Papineau. He himself was a seigneur, overlord of some 180,000 acres along the Ottawa River. For this reason, historian Fernand Ouellet calls him a divided soul. When you look at Papineau, he developed the project of a Quebec, independence of Quebec, but he did not want a change in the internal institution. Okay? He did not want, you know, to, to the seigneurial system to be abolished. He was defending until his death the seigneurial system to be abolished. You see, that's very curious for a Republican, a Democrat, and a liberal. He wanted to preserve the French civil law, the Coutume de Paris, which was the legal support of the, senior, of the seigneurial system. But inside his party, there was a left group, the group of Coutte, the group of Chénier in the north of Montreal, uh, the group of Giroux from Switzerland, the Nelson brothers, they were the radicals. And their theory was that independence is not enough. We must abolish the seigneurial system. We must abolish the French civil law. We must uh, abolish the tithes, create a separation between church and state, and establish universal suffrage. You see, that there was a program, and they were a minority in the group. Before 1837, they were not very vocal. When, you know, the agitation of 1837 was starting, those people, you know, considered that their time has come. The growing prominence of the left confirmed the worst fears of the more conservative elements within the Patriot Party. Etienne Parent spoke for the Quebec City Group when he cried out against the policy of the Montreal leadership and against the violence he saw gathering on the horizon. There is no middle course left. Either the leaders of the unrest of which we are beginning to taste the poison fruits knew that they would let loose in society the most dangerous passions, or they had not foreseen it. In the first case, they have rendered themselves guilty of a great villainy. In the second, they have shown a great lack of foresight, which must cause them to be declared unworthy to guide the people's destiny. For a couple of years now, we have been going from aggressiveness to inflexibility and from inflexibility to aggressiveness, marching on and on. And we cannot march on this way much longer without finding ourselves at a stop somewhere, but stopped between a hail of shot on one side and dishonor on the other. We in no way wish to share the terrible responsibility assumed today by our former brothers-in-arms and their partisans. We impute to them the blame for all the blood that will be shed. Against them alone must rise the wailings of widows, mothers and orphans and the lamentations of a whole people brought to social abasement. In 1834, the Lower Canadian House of Assembly sent an ultimatum to the British government in the form of 92 resolutions. In the spring of 1837, the British government finally responded. It deflected the Patriots' main demands 
and authorized the provincial government to spend public monies without the consent of the assembly. The province exploded in protests. This was the last straw. The Patriot now had little choice but to back away or go forward to war. In November of 1837, the first shots were fired at Saint-Denis. David Cayley will continue his story of the Rebellion of 1837 in Lower Canada tomorrow night on Ideas. Heard in tonight's program were Albert Miller as Louis-Joseph Papineau, with other voices by Dennis O'Connor, François Clanfer, and Richard Partington. Also heard were Jean-Pierre Wallot, National Archivist, Murray Greenwood of the University of British Columbia, Stanley Ryerson of the University of Quebec at Montreal, Phil Buckner of the University of New Brunswick, Alan Greer of the University of Toronto, and Fernand Ouellette of York University. And thanks to Eleanor Senior of St. Francis Xavier University. Music in tonight's program was arranged and performed by Ian Bell and Anne Lederman of Muddy York. On the production team were Laurie Clayton, Brian Pape, Lorne Tulk, Jean Sarrazin, and Bernie Lucht. A printed transcript of this four-part series on the rebellions of Upper and Lower Canada will be available. The whole thing costs $5, and if you'd like a copy, just send a cheque or money order to CBC Enterprises, 1837, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. We also have a reading list of works about the rebellions, and it's free. For your copy, just write to us at Ideas. The address again, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Good night.